everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, whether you're joining us in the auditorium here in Broomfield, or whether you're joining us online, uh, either right now on a Sunday morning, or I know for many of you catching this service sometime during the week, we want to welcome you to Discovery Christian Church. We are a congregation of people who are followers of Jesus Christ, as well as people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. We are a belong-before-you-believe culture. That means that you can bring your questions, whether you're a follower of Christ and you have doubt or pain or fear, all of that is welcome here. What we try to do, and whether we do it well or not, is probably for others to decide. We try to practice radical hospitality. That has always been the tradition of the church, and one of the ways that we do that in the room is this terrifying thing where we greet our neighbor, and for those of you online, what we encourage you to do is just reach out, uh, take your phone, and maybe text somebody uh, right now. I was with some friends last night at dinner, and we were talking about how quickly things have changed, where if you call somebody now without warning them first on a text, they're a little offended, right? We just, we continue to protect our space and our, and our time even more. Unfortunately, the history of the church gets in the way of that. Unfortunately, the history of the church was in a culture where we're against each other in the church, we're always and forever for each other regardless of your belief, who you voted for, uh, your orientation, all of that. We are for each other. So what we're going to invite you to do is just take a minute in the room and stand. Turn around, find somebody, tell them your name, receive their name. And if you tried to do something unhurried this week, let them know. Okay, hey, we are in week two of a New Year series called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Last week, our lead pastor, Zach, kicked us off with a powerful and, and I know for me personally, a very convicting message about the nature of hurry. Zach really dialed in on some of the developments in our culture. And he actually, I remember one of the parts of the sermon where he went through certain years in history. I had never thought until he mentioned it about how the invention of the light bulb, for example, revolutionized our sleep patterns. Uh, And so all of these different things, and so the series is based on this fantastic book by a pastor named John Mark Comer. Many of us have been nerds of this guy for some time, to be frank, and for some of you, you may not have heard of him. Actually, almost anything he says and writes is really worth digging into, but we as a congregation, we're all digging into this book together. So this is week two. We know what that's like. For some of you, you're like, don't, weren't here last week, no problem. No problem. You can catch up on Zach's message this week. I would highly encourage you to do that because I am doing a sequel or the, the part two based on Zach. You'll follow along just fine today, but catching up on what Zach challenged us to do, the way he outlined the whole structure would be really helpful. The second thing you can do is pick up this book and read along. It's not too late. It's actually very easy to read in the sense of the way John Mark writes, very hard to put into practice. And one of the things that hit me square in the chest last week is Zach challenged us this past week to maybe pay a little more attention than usual to how hurried we are. 
And that challenge hit me right in the chest. I am now starting my second year of trying to build and establish a small business. And it's, it's kicking my butt. I mean, it's going very well. But if any of you have attempted something like this, whether you started something or launched a business, what happens is there's more to do than time to do. And it's very difficult to end a day and feel good about how much you've done because there's too many plates. And this is my life right now. And that's fine. I, I knew what I was getting into, but I sat in the service last week and just sat and listened to what Zach was challenging us to. And I was really convicted. I was like, I'm going to take this challenge seriously. And so for the last week, I've been paying attention to the hurry in my life, and I'm not particularly happy with what I've seen. It's not news, because I knew I was hurried. It just is difficult when you take a look. So I'll give you one really silly example. I, I was at King Super doing the grocery run, and I was checking out. This has never happened to me before in low these many years of grocery runs. And uh, you know how it is when you, you put the, the groceries on the aisle. I'm not a fan of the self-checkout, by the way. I don't like it when the, the robot chirps at me because of the weight of the scale. So I don't like that. So I like to have a conversation with somebody and engage the people. So I usually get in line, and there they are checking my stuff out. And, of course, the cart that I rolled in is different than the cart that they put my groceries in. This is a small detail, but it's important for the story. You know, they exchange your carts, right? So I roll my cart up, and then they put my stuff in their cart. And as I'm wheeling the cart away, the wheel locks so hard that, that it just jams, and I, I hit my magnificent abdominal region <laughs> into the cart. It actually hurt. It was, I was, I've never had a cart lock up. Like Sometimes I've had like a stiff wheel, but this thing just said, I'm not going. And it stopped. And I didn't quite know what to do. I looked behind me because for me, being courteous is everything. And there were two people behind me that I was blocking. So now I'm really anxious. And when you're really anxious, what you do is just more of the same. Whatever's not working, do more of that. So I, I'm bearing down and trying to drag this cart. And truly, the cart tipped. It would not go. And now I'm stuck. What am I going to do? Like, this is a terrible... Like, what was interesting is, is I started to think about, okay, Zach actually challenged us to notice when we're in a hurry. And what I'm doing right now is I'm making the mental calculation of efficiency. Is it quicker? Do I save time because I've got so much to do? Is it quicker just to keep dragging this stupid cart out to my magnificent Swedish wagon? Those of you who don't know, I drive a Saab station wagon. and uh, I'm part of the wagon mafia, actually. Anyway, do I do that, or, or do I drag the cart out of line, these people can go forward, and then I have to pull everything out of this cart and put it in another cart, and I literally, as I'm dragging the cart, I calculated it's probably going to take 20 seconds to change carts. No, that's too long. And so I dragged this stupid thing like 300 feet. It was ridiculous because of efficiency because I was so obsessed with getting home in a hurry. I, I don't know. I, I, do you have a problem with hurry? It, it's pretty absurd, isn't it? But, but here's the thing. We live in a rapid-paced and technological society, and each year it is getting faster. Like, we've been talking about this for decades, how, oh, man, life is speeding up and, oh, how difficult it is. But the fact is, in 2023, life is faster and more technologically advanced than it was in, for example, 2010, by, by quite a margin, by an exponential margin. So here we are trying to live an unhurried life in a culture that only knows hurry. And then I think actually in the church, 
those of us who take our faith seriously, we had the added challenge of then opening our Bible that talks about this unhurried way. Uh, John Mark inviting us, what Zach's leading us to is this unhurried life. But how do you say it? It was easier in the Bible. Can I just say that? Because they did not live in a technological advanced society. They were not always in a rush. They lived in an agrarian society where you plant a seed and then you sit around and you watch it grow for months. I mean, I'm a little overstating their society, but that's essentially the radical difference between the times of the Bible when Jesus is inviting us to an unhurried life. Can I just be bold and say it was easier for them? I'm not saying life was easier. I'm not making that ridiculous claim. Life was very difficult for the people in the Bible. And for many of the people in the New Testament, they gave their life because faith was a threat to empire. So please don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Paul had it easy and we had it hard. What I'm saying is in the realm of trying to live an unhurried life, it was easier for them because their entire culture was unhurried. In the 1990s, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. It was the first time in my life I had ever been in a country with abject poverty. And um, for those of you political junkies, this was in the era when Bill Clinton was sneaking President Aristide in the trunk of a car out of Port-au-Prince to get him to America because his military commander, Cedrus, had pulled a coup d'etat. Now, that's a very particular piece of history, but those of us who are old enough, who remembers this in the 1990s? Yeah, I was accidentally there when that happened. And it was wild. Now, as a young man, it was amazing because I got to be part of a coup d'etat and there were riots on the street. And when you're that age, you're just a fearless. You don't even, you know, don't even have enough sense to be afraid. So it was quite exciting for me. But one of the things that was interesting, I was there for about 10 days, is um, Cedrus shut off the electricity in the whole city. And I'm staying with these missionaries and the sun would set at 7.30 or 8 at night and we'd just go to bed. Now, why do we go to bed at 7.30 or 8 at night? Simple. There was nothing else to do. What do you do in pitch black? Not much. And so we go to bed. And so I would be asleep by 8.30. And then I would be wide awake with more sleep than I'd had in years at 4.30 or 5 a.m. But the missionaries aren't up yet. It's too early to be rummaging around their kitchen. But it's light enough. The sun had started to rise. And there's nothing else to do. So what did I do? I I read my Bible and prayed for like two hours every morning. Why did I read my Bible and pray for two hours every morning? I hope you don't take this the wrong way. Because there was nothing else to do. And it was unbelievable. I mean, it was, it, it was phenomenal. I was having these profound encounters with God. I was getting so much out of the Bible. And that whole mission trip was amazing on a number of reasons, but one of my favorite things was just two hours of unstructured time with no other options except Scripture and the Lord, and I took it because that was better than just that, right? And then I came, I came back to the United States and got on that treadmill that there's really not an option not to get on. That's the challenge, isn't it? We're not Amish we really can't leave our culture and the obligations and the pressures. The, this is our reality. So the question today, and this is my job today, is try to help us. How do we bridge uh, the gap between one and the other? Um, it, it's tricky. 
So let me just say a couple of things, and then I'd actually like to begin by giving us a couple of ways that maybe we can manage this. The first thing is, if left unchecked and unaddressed, we will hurry and be hurried. That's just default. So it's just helpful to know that if we do not work on it, the momentum of our culture and the momentum of our life is to hurry and hurry us. And so this is a lifelong battle. This is not a one-and-done situation. This will be the rest of our life. Um, But I think the whole balance with hurry is to be careful about our expectations because if we right now feel very hurried and then we open our Bible and see this wonderfully unhurried like utopia, we can run into the problem of trying something and failing and saying can't be done. So I'm a big fan of tiny goals. Have you heard of BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals? They're great. I also really like tiny goals. Um, A couple of years ago, uh, Jimmy and I happened to be in a conference where there was a missionary to Japan. His name was Rod Plummer. And man, Rod taught us something that I've been thinking about since then. That was 2018, I think. I've been chewing on this for five years. Rod said, the challenge in Japan is everyone is such in a hurry. It's one of the most hurried cultures in the world, and they're obsessed with efficiency. And so everybody carries this high anxiety, but also on top of that, there's very little Christian expression at all in Japan. And so Rod Plummer said, what you have to do is you have to figure out how to take these highly hurried, highly efficient people who always feel like they should be working harder and doing more, who know nothing about Jesus and the Bible, how do you disciple these people? And here's what Rod Plummer told us. He says, what you do is you make the the bar of discipleship so low that everyone just kind of falls into it. So he said, he's been in Japan for 25 years. He said, I just kept lowering and lowering and lowering and lowering the requirement to be a disciple of Jesus until like the high jump bar was like on the ground and people just step over it. And then he gave us his discipleship plan. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. Now, we have three things on the screen. Uh, Yeah, there it is. Rod Plummer's is the first one. One minute of prayer and one verse of scripture per day. That's it. Rod Plummer has built churches all over Japan and has discipled unchurched people into Christianity and then Christians into leaders by challenging everybody, just give one minute of prayer to God a day and one verse a day. And then Rod said, do you want to know my leadership development plan, like my elders and the people that are really discipling? He says, I asked them, what did you do today for one minute with God and what one verse did you read today? That's his whole thing. There's nothing more. Now, some of us who have been Christians for a while, we're like, that can't possibly get the job done. There's no way that just giving God one minute of attention a day or two minutes with a Bible verse is going to disciple you. Of course not, Rob Plummer says. He says, I don't know anybody, unchurched or elder, who only stops at one verse. And I don't know a single person that only stops at one minute. He says, if you lower the bar so low that everyone falls into it, People start it and then they just keep going and going and going because they discover the relief that God provides to them when they just get off the treadmill of anxiety. So I'm going to ask us to really consider uh, some tactical things today. Zach is going to help us over this series build what's called a rule of life, maybe a structure, maybe some things you can try. What I'm going to invite you to do today is maybe try some introductory steps. If your goal is unhurried living, then the next step isn't an unhurried life, it's contained hurry. So rather than saying, this week, I'm not going to hurry, forget it. 
you're going to fail. And then particularly those of you perfectionists, you're going to condemn yourself and then you're going to be like, should have done better. Let's not play that game. Rather than that, why don't you set some calendar times tomorrow? So I'm going to invite you to pull out this, this devil device right now that's keeping us all busy. Would you, let's baptize this device right now. And I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to open your calendars to Monday, tomorrow. You can do this while I'm talking and simply make a calendar appointment with God tomorrow. This is step one. This is an intro step. You're not shooting for the unhurried life. You're shooting for contained moments of unhurried life. Okay, and, you can, and I can't make you do this, but some of you are just staring at me like, I'm not going to do it. That's fine. I would maybe hope that you tithe a little more to the church. That would make us feel better. But you, you live your own life. You live your own life. But this is one thing you can do. And if, if one minute of prayer and one verse of Scripture a day to you feels almost condescendingly small, then maybe the next intro step. Many of us have found tremendous uh, freedom in simply pausing three times a day. Uh, this is what I'm practicing in my life right now. I feel very hurried. I feel overwhelmed by all that I have to do. I've got a couple of key projects that I'm late on. And what I've tried to do is... When my feet hit the floor when I get out of bed, I try to stop and remember the Lord. And it takes anywhere between a minute and 10 minutes. But just to begin my day, what I'm trying to do in my life is I'm trying to begin my day where the Lord gets the first word in my life. Before I get a word, I'm asking the Lord for a word. And it's really helped. Because I, I, I don't know what you're like, but I, my, my brain kind of wakes up before my body does. I'm already worried about it when I wake up. That's kind of the way I've always lived my life. And so just the ability before I like zing, off I go for the day, just to say, Lord, I just, before I get going, what do you have for me today? And it's very practical. I don't want to be graphic, but I'm doing it while I'm brushing my teeth and getting ready for the day and heading down for my coffee. Okay, Lord, what's the first word? And, and sometimes the first word is like what I prayed for us after our song. Like, oh, what, what do I need to remember that's true about the Lord today? God is merciful today. Uh, I feel like I'm carrying a lot, but God's actually carrying things, and maybe I can give some things to God. First word. And then what I try to do at lunchtime is the same thing. And then I try to give God the last word. Um, before I was doing this, television was getting the last word in my life, to be frank. I just... I would binge watch the show that I'd watched several times before because one of the ways I numb out is reruns. It doesn't cost me as much to watch something I already know. It's like this chicken soup. That's kind of what it is. And so I thought, oh, that's not the right way to end the day. What if I just gave a few minutes and said, Lord, you have the last word. And what has helped me in my life is to remember theologically when God gets the first word and the last word, unbelievable things happen. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks life. John chapter 1, God speaks and the word becomes flesh. When God has the first word and God is sovereign, unbelievable things happen. And then we slot ourselves after God's first word and we live our life. And then, and then, uh, when we give God the last word, I mean, I'm talking theologically. I have, um, well, I've, I've done a number of funerals. And I'll, I'll just play my hand, the worst funerals are when the coffin is short. It's, it's the worst funeral you can do, and it's the worst funeral you can attend. Um, and one of the things that helps me in a funeral 
is to remember that death does not have the last word. Like theologically, what death does is death shows up and it stings us like a wasp. It, it actually stings and it steals. These are the things that the Bible describes that death does. It stings and it steals, it robs. If you've ever lost someone that's precious to you, you feel like someone robbed you. Someone took something from you. Because death always steals and death stings. And yet, Paul particularly reminds us, he says, oh, death, where's your sting gone? And, and God gives back what was stolen from us because God gets the last word. What death does is death shows up and it runs its stupid mouth. But then it runs out of words. It's got nothing left to say. And then it says, that's it. That's it, people. And then death leaves because death thinks it's had the last word. And God says, actually, no, there's a word after that. I, I'm, I get the final word, resurrection. And so what I've tried to do in my life, just on a very practical level, is I'm trying to live each day in a death, burial, resurrection orientation. It's not easy to do. I'm probably getting a B minus. I don't do it every day. Some days I forget. But when I'm intentional about it, and one of the ways I'm intentional is I baptize the devil device. I don't really think this is a devil device. I'm just playing. But I'll make calendar appointments that set alarms, and you would think that a pastor would not need that. I need that. And you can do that. You can just set a lunch alarm and it can just say God, something like that, okay? And then of course, uh, we're also encouraging everyone to, to provide structure and, and buy this book and read it with the rest of us rather than going alone, participate in community. So our small groups are going through this book and many of us are reading. I, the last time I read this book was this morning before I came in. Our passage today, for those who have been in the church for a while, you know this passage, so we're actually not going to spend a lot of time on it. Matthew chapter 11. I'll have it on the screen. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll just read it again. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those of us in the auditorium here in Broomfield, hands up if you've read this passage before. I, I, for those of us who are church people, this is a very familiar passage. Some of you, this may be new to you. Uh, I'll just say a couple of simple things about it. Number one, this yoke talk is another rural agrarian reference. Uh, when ox are plowing a field, they work in pairs. And in order for the ox to be more efficient, surprisingly enough, and to work well, uh, farmers put a yoke, a, a wooden kind of coat hanger, if you will, that yokes the ox together to harness their power so that they get along better is part of it. They don't kind of nip at each other. They're kind of stuck. But then they also get to relieve each other by wor working a yoke. And so what Jesus is inviting you and I is to come under his workload. And he's going to yoke you and I together, what's called the body of Christ, not alone, but together. 
and we have this burden now on our shoulders as we do the work of God. But what's fascinating about this, and actually in its day when Jesus said this, highly controversial, is Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you were to read the Bible scholars on this passage, they would say that Jesus is doing this to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, so because Jesus is not the only person to put a yoke on people, it turns out that the religious leaders of the day were putting a yoke on people. And so when Jesus said, come to me, I am gentle and humble and you will find rest, that was scandalous. But then when he says, my yoke is easy, this, uh, the, the, the Bible uh, scholar version of this to the Pharisees is that. It's, I, I can't do you know, one of the fingers but there's really no way to overstate how offensive Jesus was in this moment because he is critiquing the yoke that the religious establishment had, had put on the people. Because what happened is there were all these laws and all these rabbis. And all these rabbis had different opinions about all these laws. So they created laws so you could, you know, fulfill the laws. And before they knew it, there were 613 different laws that anyone had to follow to be right with God. 613. But not only that, but there were different rabbis having different opinions on how to fulfill the 613. It was impossible. It was a heavy burden. And Jesus is saying, forget tons of rabbis. Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. One rabbi. That's all you need. And then instead of 613 laws, Jesus is saying, I'll give you one law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's my yoke. It's easy and light. And if you want to come under my way, Jesus is saying, you can actually relax into the presence of God. You can actually enjoy your sovereign king who will put you on mission. I love what Zach just announced, where Zach is talking about these marginalized people who need the church and we can be the church. Uh, the problem in our society is we're all looking for rest and relaxation. We're looking for a mattress or a vacation. Jesus is offering a yoke. Jesus is saying, if you really want to relax into the grace of God, get on mission with me. I'd like to show us some deeper steps into this that's kind of related to that. If one minute of Bible a day and one minute of prayer a day is almost offensive to you, then going a bit of deeper is you can download the Lectio 365 app where it takes a passage a day from the daily office, the scriptures that are read around the world by the whole church, and it puts you in them about 20 minutes a day with scripture and contemplative prayer. Um, the man that started it is a man named Pete Gregg. He's English. It's going to be okay, but he's English. And he has a movement called the 24-7 prayer movement where he's trying to get people around the world praying 24-7. Not that you pray 24-7, but that we as the body of Christ in every time zone are engaging God. And this is his app just to help you 20 minutes a day. It's, it's amazing. But you can see on these deeper steps, one of the things that I added was one of the ways to rest in Christ is bring relief to someone's burden. It's almost like if you want relief, the counterintuitive kingdom way is to offer relief to someone else and you actually get relief. It's, it's wild. 
there's no escaping that Jesus is giving us a yoke, not a mattress. He's not inviting us to a nap. And hey, there's nothing wrong with naps. I'm a big fan of them. But fundamentally, Jesus is inviting us on mission with him. It could be that one of the reasons we're so exhausted is we are not living the Jesus way. Jesus' sovereignty and priorities are not our priorities. We have not submitted our will to Jesus. When Jesus prayed to the Father, not my will but thy be done, we pray that with our fingers crossed. Just kidding, Lord. Hope I still get my life the way I have it now. And so Jesus is offering us a yoke. I was thinking about this. I, I was just thinking, okay, in the Roman Empire, you've got these people who are trying to please God, and you've got the religious leaders putting their yoke on them. I'll just give you an example of what it was like. Like, like if, if the law of Moses is, uh, you know, don't break the Sabbath, for example, like rest on the Sabbath, then the religious leaders would say, well, what does rest mean? And that, that question led to old men cannot use a walking cane. This is a true story, by the way. Old men cannot use a walking cane on the Sabbath because the roads are dusty with dirt. They, they didn't have blacktop like we have today, of course. And when you use a cane on a dirt road, you do a little indent, which is what plowing is. And plowing is work. And you can't work on the Sabbath, so old men, you need to be carried on the Sabbath. Like, this is ridiculous, right? The modern equivalent, I've got a photo of it for you. Don't speed through a school zone. Pretty simple. But then some city council came along and took what's a very simple law and made it stupidly complicated to where it's exhausting to try to obey what's really a simple law. That's the Pharisee's yoke. That was the religious leader's yoke, and it wore people out. And then, of course, the Roman Empire had a yoke that was much more harsh, that involved death and a burden of taxes and profound fear. Jesus comes along, and what's interesting to us, because in our culture, the American culture particularly, but Western culture at large, we're not really wrapped up in empire. We're free, right? And we're not really under religious. In fact, we, we rebel against any religious legalism. No, we're people of grace. And so we have swung the pendulum wildly to where no one tells me what to do, baby. And all you have to do is go on social media and discover when somebody tries to tell someone else how to live on social media, it's entertaining. Actually, if you would like to try a sick social experiment this week, log on social media and mansplain to someone how to live their life. It would be so fun. And then just watch everything devolve into chaos because we are not under the yoke of law. We feel no community responsibility to how you think I should live my life and I don't get to tell you how to live your life. We believe in freedom, right? And we have people who have died for this belief. It's a profound belief in particularly America. As an immigrant, I would say, because I didn't realize I wasn't very free in Australia until I came to America, to be honest. And Americans would say, what's it like now that you're living in freedom? I'm like, what? What changed? Because America so values self-autonomy that it can feel like us when we're under Jesus' yoke that we're oppressed. Does that make sense? No one gets to tell me anything what to do. That's not what Jesus is offering. He's inviting us to submit our lives to the sovereign king of the universe and order our lives in such a way that is the best way to live as a human. So one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do this week is be skeptical of the freedom you think you have. And ask yourself, 
Am I doing it or is it doing it to me? I haven't finished this project yet for the sermon, but I just got to thinking, I wonder if I have 613 laws that I live by that are killing me as somebody who believes I'm free and autonomous and gets to do what I want. Does that make sense? I know it's, it's sophisticated. Where I grew up in Western Australia, it's the most isolated city in the world. You drive for two or three hours and you're nowhere. My dad uh, was a or is a mechanical engineer, and so once in a while he would sell an engine or a pump or a generator to what, what Texans would uh, affectionately call a ranch, but what we would, a Texas ranch is what we would call a nice backyard, right? So in Western Australia, for example, one day my dad and I went to repair a generator on a ranch that was 750,000 acres. I know, right now you're getting the idea. And that's like a little dimple on my state. Yeah, I struggle with Texans bragging about how big their state is because I'm like, baby, I could fit five of you in my state. And then that never ends well. That just never ends well. They show me the size of their truck and that's it. Because I drive a Swedish wagon. I drive a Swedish wagon. It's not very Texan. Anyway... And so we're on this 750,000 acre property and I'm a teenager and the ranch guy, that we call it a station, he says, oh, you want to ride a motorbike? And so me and my friend, I had a friend with me, we go riding motorbikes and um, we ride for, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours. And this will sound funny to you, but we spent most of our time chasing kangaroos on motorbikes and it's a really fun thing to do. And of course, we couldn't catch them. But an hour and a half or two hours later, we stop. Oh, that was fun. And we suddenly realize, oh no, Oh, we have no idea where we are. We have no idea how to get back home. We don't know what direction we went. There's no fencing. And it was terrifying being that free. That's my point. It was terrifying. I wanted someone to say, here's the fence, follow the fence, you can get home. We, we got, obviously got home. I'm not dead. But it was really scary. It was really scary. And so I think there are some things our culture makes us believe that are freedom that are actually slavery. And hurry is one of them. We think we're free to choose our own future and make more money and whatever it is. And there's an element where that's true and beautiful. And there's an element where that's slavery. And maybe this week you might just consider, maybe I'm adding to Jesus one law. Maybe I'm adding a number of laws myself and they're killing me. And maybe this is the week where I get to exchange yokes get to exchange yokes. Uh, our band, Alex and Jimmy and our team have designed a service experience to help us enjoy the rest we have in Christ. So I'm going to invite them to come out now and prepare. And just as they're getting ready, I was listening to a podcast this week. It was an interview. The podcast host is a guy named Neil Brennan. And he's not very well known, but Neil Brennan is Dave Chappelle's comedy writing partner. Uh, and he's starting to do some stand-up specials on Netflix. But his guest was very well known, David Letterman. David Letterman came on, instead of being the interviewer, he was the one answering the questions. Very unusual for David Letterman to let anybody ask him about his personal life. Those of you who are familiar with David Letterman, maybe followed him, he's famously private about his personal life. And Neil Brennan, through the interview, was just pulling out of Letterman some of his deepest, darkest fears. And they got into, what does Letterman do to experience love? It was incredible to listen to. And here is David Letterman, this intensely private person, very comfortably talking about it. He says, oh, well, what I used to do to experience love, he said, was every night I would get out on a stage in front of 400 people and they determined whether I was worth loving or not. 
And if they applauded and the show went great, I was loved and it was good for a few hours and I'd wake up the next morning and I'm not loved and I had to earn it again. He says, but if the show didn't go well, because even though the show is on like really late at night, they film it at like four in the afternoon. He says, if the show didn't go well, I would hide in my office until it got really dark and I would sneak home at 11 or 12 at night when no one could see me. And then Neil Brennan says, yeah, but you had a son, right? You've got Harry. How has being a father changed the way you experience love? And Letterman said, well, at first it didn't change anything. What I would do is instead of an audience of 400, I had an audience of one. And every night at dinner, I would do sock puppets and vaudeville. I'm trying to entertain my son so he can love me. And Letterman said, and then he says, Harry wasn't buying any of that. One day I just woke up and realized he just loves me. I don't have to do anything. I just have to relax into it. I just have to believe what's true rather than striving. It was, it was a profoundly, I was like crying in my sob wagon listening to this whole thing. And here is Letterman so comfortably talking about all the ridiculous things he's done to try to receive love. And yet here he has this relationship and it just is. That's the point. It just is. So as we listen to this song, the welcome is you can relax into the grace of God. You can relax into the grace of God, and that's hard to believe. So one of the ways we're going to prepare to believe it is to sing it. So I'm going to invite you to stand now as we sing.